Hey, welcome to Rushcast. Coming at you every Monday and talking about only the geekiest material of Rush's catalog and just about anything Rush. My name is Jay Mantis. I host the show and have been for almost a year now. We've uh, enjoyed a lot of success in our first year as Rushcast and like four episodes named something different. We were what? Uh, permanent waves before. We were permanent waves for like four episodes if you've been with us all that time. So thank you for downloading and streaming or whatever. If you want to rate and review on iTunes, that's always appreciated. Today, we're doing something a little bit different. I'm going to try to get in on, or get onto the show. The people that donated to keep Rushcast running, we asked, we did a Kickstarter to have unlimited bandwidth on our server, and we successfully met our goal. So joining me for the entirety of the episode today is the second the second listener to be on who donated after Alec Pulianis. Uh Please welcome Ron Reed. What's up, Ron? Hey, Jay. Thank you. Uh, Ron and I talked a little bit yesterday, just getting ready for the show, and I think you, you guys are in for a treat uh, listening to us talk, I suppose. Uh, Ron is out in Cincinnati, right? Absolutely. Well, I am now. Originally, I was a Rush fan in Chicago for many years, Indiana for a short while, and then now Cincinnati for about the last almost six years. And I'm and I'm right to say you are not 23 years old. No, absolutely not. <laughs> I'm 48. Okay. So I've been a Rush fan since, um, well, originally, I clearly remember hearing Tom Sawyer repeated and repeated and repeated when Moving Pictures was out. And though, as I play drums, uh, I was a very young drummer at the time. As a young drummer, I dug it, but it just didn't quite grab me. It wasn't until Exit Stage Left that I had the opportunity to really gravitate with Rush. And the way that came about was I was in a band at the time, and I was in bands you know, for many years, even as a really young kid. And one of my bandmates... We had this massive PA. He said, man, you've got to hear this. And so he puts on YYZ. And this is, of course, exit stage left YYZ. So it's got the incredible, uh, in my opinion, Neil's greatest drum solo um, for a live performance. And we had a, he had a blasting through this huge PA. So, I mean, you could really feel it. It was just incredible. So from that moment... I was an absolute Rush fan and went from exit stage left and just bought up the whole catalog and just started absorbing it as as hard and as fast as I could. You think to this day that the YYZ performance on exit stage left was Neil's best playing? I think that it was as far as Rush-related solos, Rush-related Neil Peart drum solos, I think that is the one that has its most cohesive and it's got the most where he's taking you along on this journey through just, I mean, highs and lows and just incredible. It's just amazing. And the cowbell stuff in there is absolutely signature Neil and, you know, everything all the way down to the gong bass drum, 
where, of course, the first time I heard it through this massive PA, it was just like, wow, I've never heard drums sound that great. So don't get me wrong. Subsequently, he is the master and did incredible things, especially with the horn sections of ladder solos and um, you know all the things that he would trigger and play along with or things that he would trigger to throw in accents. Love all of that. However, if I was going to take a young drummer and show him or her one solo from Rush, then I would definitely make it that one. On the contrast, I honestly believe that Neil Peart's greatest solo ever, and we'll get into that in just a little bit. I want to talk about the top 10 Neil moments, um, drumming-wise. But I'll go ahead and reveal that if you go to YouTube and look for Neil Peart, Buddy Rich Tribute, he's playing on a little four-piece, and the, he's wearing a turtleneck, playing a four-piece, and the band is behind him. I only describe all that so that in case anybody goes to look for it, they'll know, yeah, this is the video that that guy was talking about. I'm telling you, that is an incredible, incredible solo. And one of my favorite things about it is you can see behind him, he's got Buddy's, Buddy Rich's, big band behind him. And when he goes to the cowbell part, the crowd, just the reaction of the crowd is incredible. And the guy in the band behind him, he just looks, he has this look on his face just like, Wow, can you believe this guy? This guy's amazing. I, he was He's just loving it. And it's incredible for that, that somebody who sat behind Buddy Rich is now behind Neil. And that, you know, they just feel it. So, yeah. That, I, and have you ever seen that one, Jay? Yeah, I have. And I watched it recently uh, through a different lens because I, I'm studying jazz right now in a grad program. And yeah. I hang out with a lot of jazz drummers. And now that I've heard, I'd heard people kind of crap on Neil's Buddy Rich tribute in that performance. And I always thought well, that that's wasn't. a different performance. So there's actually two. One of which, he's, he's tight, super like tense. And that was at a much bigger, a much bigger show. This one is not the same exact. This is sort of a memorial concert where he's definitely a lot looser in this one. I can't remember the distinctive difference, but... Then that's the one... You're has, right. Okay, so then that's... I must have seen the first one then. Yes, Be- because the first the, one, I agree. The drummers at school were telling me, they're like, oh yeah, like it just wasn't in the style. And now I understand what that means. It wasn't stylistic. Right. And, and uh, actually, one of the drummers mentioned that. He said, yeah, Neil was like really upset after that performance and went and took a bunch of lessons yes. and... Yes. No, that's true. The the one I'm speaking of, though, he's wearing a turtleneck, a little four-piece, uh, one, two, three, yeah, four-piece kit, band behind him, just an incredible performance. In and- fact, I have searched subsequently to try to see that original video again. I can't find it. But I've seen it before because I remember, like, man, he's really, really, really stiff, and he was outperformed that night. By, by several of the other drummers, including Steve Smith, who's an incredible drummer, formerly of Journey. He did an, just an amazing job. And, you know, to hear Journey's drumming, I'm not sure that I would 
<laughs> think that he could outplay Neil on any given night, but that particular night he did. However, back to my main point, that performance that he does in the turtleneck on its Buddy Rich Memorial concert, really great, really fantastic. I love it. Uh, I'll admit that this is an episode that I am not as prepared for. I've got a ton of schoolwork lately um, and didn't have the time to sit down and, and get all of the emails together and all the tweets that people sent to me regarding um, the digital discussion from last week and things like that. So for the listeners um, who I've emailed back and said, I'll, I'll, I'll be mentioning this on the show or whatever, um, I'll be getting to that next week because I need to sit down and go through those emails. Uh, so I apologize for that. Uh, however... Ron's really got his stuff together, and he sent me kind of an overview of he essentially planned the whole episode, which works out nicely for an episode or or a week where I wasn't prepared. Um, So I'm giving the reins to you, Ron. I I will say this: the the uh, Peter emailed me and said, um, and I had read this, but I didn't know anything much about it. That Rush will be or Getty and Alex will be on Chicago Fire. I think is the TV show. Can we look that up? Yeah. Can you tell me what the uh, the day and time for Chicago Fire and Rush will be this week? We'll have our producer check it out, and I'll let you know. Um, cool. but what would you like to talk about, Ron? Well, you are you, we already talked. Loose. You're a you're a, a Tyshawn defender. I am a Tyshawn defender. I love Tyshawn. I think it's um, and I love your description of high water your narrative that you gave to that. I loved it in a couple of few episodes back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I think that elements of that narrative could be blended or lent, I don't know what you say, <laughs> but could could be applicable to Tyshawn. Uh, absolutely. I think they're sister songs, you know? Absolutely. I totally agree. And, ironically, back-to-back. Um. Chicago NBC's Chicago Fire has booked some interesting guest stars for its November seventeenth episode. What is that Thursday? Yeah, I think I think it's Thursday, November seventeenth. Rush to appear on TV show Chicago Fire on NBC. So we'll we'll be all we'll all be looking for that. But yeah, I think Tyshawn is definitely a tune. <laughs> As I throw my producer's iPhone back at him. Uh, Tyshawn is is something that you have to close your eyes to get inside. You can't you Absolutely. can't go from Anthem on on Fly By Night into Tyshawn and expect them to be similar things because they're not. Uh, you have to be it. The same reason you know every all these different albums are so different sonically and musically that you, you it it's dependent on your mood. If I'm listening to any if I'm listening to Hold Your Fire. I'm not in the mood for Fly By Night. If I'm listening to Snakes and Arrows, I'm not in the in the mood for Test for Echo. They're they're different areas and they correspond to how you're feeling as a human. Right. So I'm glad to I hear agree. I'm and, and you talked you you gave a lot of love to Jeff Garrett when we talked before, who was on the episode a while ago. And Jeff was somebody who yeah, said, I you know, that. I don't really like the riffs. I don't I'm not into the riffs and the heavy guitars as much as I am the more more emotional and more musical parts of their catalog, like the back end of Hold Your Fire. Right, I agree with that. Um I think sometimes 
the uh, electric guitar in recent years has become a bit heavier, maybe even arguably a bit too heavy from time to time. But what I really, really love is when Alex really plays the chord note by note, uh, as he does so much on Hold Your Fire. Do you ever notice that Alex's live tone is a little dirtier than his studio tone? And I'm sure that's by design. But when he goes to a clean sound, it's almost never completely clean in a live concert. It's always got a little bit of gain to it. That's a good point. And I think that um, one thing is, for me... I've been listening to Sirius XM. They've been playing, and have you listened to it? They've been playing time and again, four times thus far, the R40 tour. Oh, no, I didn't know that. Where, oh, yeah, it's fantastic. And they're playing it a great number of additional times. They have a whole schedule online prior to the release. Um, they're playing the entire the entire thing. And what I find is is that I hear it better when I can't see it and hear it. So whenever you've got all the visual, a lot of things kind of are forgiven. Um, People have been a slight bit critical of moments of Getty's voice, and don't get me wrong, Getty is the end-all, beat-all. And live, standing there, watching it, I don't hear it. Whereas on the R40, CD or as it's been Sirius XM playing it, it does stand out a little more. But don't let me get on that kick. Getty is absolutely, he's really the reason that I've I've had the great fortune of seeing Rush 19 times. I think that if you took um, Neil, as much as I love Neil, I think it'd be great to see Neil maybe a dozen times. But Getty, with all of his energy and his terrific front man and just amazing bass playing, you've got to go every every time you get the opportunity. And living in Chicago when I did, it was great because many, many years in Chicago, they would play two nights in a row back-to-back. Hmm. So as such, I'd always buy tickets for both nights and uh, be able to really rack up the shows that way. My first show, though, seeing them live, was Power Windows. They had Marillion as an opener, and that gave me an opportunity to discover that band, and I love that band too. Um, at least the original formation of Marillion. Have you ever heard any Marillion? No, I don't know anything about them. Oh, uh, yeah, the original. Um, they had a anything with the lead singer Fish mm-hmm. from Marillion. Absolutely fantastic, terrific, really great. So I was fortunate enough to get to see Marillion twice and learn about them, as well as discover my first Rush concert. Subsequently, though, um, I actually got a Neil broken stick once at a show in Peoria, nice. Illinois. <laughs> yeah, the way that went down, though, the uh, at the end of the show, everybody's clearing out, and I was just kind of hanging out, just minding my own business, not getting in anybody's way, just, you know, watching them tear down the show. And uh, much to my good fortune... One of the roadies took a stick, threw it out. You know, saw me sitting there, threw it over my way. So that's very cool. That's the best, yeah. And then, yeah, it was fantastic. And also, I was thrilled to get the opportunity, now that I live in Ohio, to go to be at the Time Machine uh, oh, Cleveland. That's so, great. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm really jealous great. of that. That's definitely something I would I would try to do if I had the opportunity. Uh, let me ask you two. You know, though, oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was going to talk about R40 because R40 was my favorite tour. Yeah, why? Oh, absolutely, without a doubt, my favorite because even as far back as Power Windows, I was standing there. I'm looking at you know Neil's already got drums that that spin. He's already got the electronic percussion in the background. And I'm thinking, man, to see the way it used to be, the way it's um, pictured on the front of um, all the world's a stage with the big tubular bells in the background and all that, just that would be incredible. So standing there, watching it, enjoying it, loving it, thinking, man, to just see this kind of turn back in time would be, I would love that. So I loved seeing the kind of backwards progression all the way back to the, what they, as they refer to it, the El Darko kit. Mm -hmm. Have you heard that reference? Yep. Yeah. So I loved seeing Neil um, on a kit that is not so heavily backed with uh, electronic percussion, a kit that no longer spins, and two drum sets, one of which is the original. You know, one interesting thing about the El Darko kit, though, the original, and this is just minutia, um, the original kit, the man against the masses, or rush icon, the star man, he faces on each drum a different direction on, oh, on yeah. the fronts of each bass drum. Yeah, but on El Darko, he's facing the same direction. Oh, and yeah, so, now we're talking. So this is the t- these are the tiny details I want to know about. <laughs> right, exactly. So it's always, always to me, it's like, how did they, how did they get... How You're did like, they that's get too much down? left butt cheek. We need more right, exactly. more right butt cheek right. on that one. Exactly, <laughs> yes. That's right, that's right. And then... Also, another thought of mine was I had hoped that they would, right before the last song, those, the you know, the uh, moving pictures guys who were making all the set, the stage changes uh-huh. throughout the night, I was hoping that they would come out and just put something on the front of both bass drum heads to show the original Rush logo. You know, with the blue background? The Silver Rush. Oh, yes, the, uh, yes. Yeah, and the one the one bass that says Neil, the other Peart. Yeah, the, yeah. Oh, the original Chromie kit, which is actually on display in Indianapolis. Oh, no way. There's a, um, yeah, it's fantastic. There's a museum there, and it's going to be on display for a good long while, but it's not on permanent display. There's a museum there called Rhythm Center, and it's downtown Indy. And it's fantastic. Really great museum. Really cool place. Fantastic people there. And they've got Chromie on display. And it is... It is they've, they've done a great job displaying it. <laughs> it's really prominent. Really nice. Love so, it. as a drummer, let's talk about these two R40 kits. Which do you, as a player, like better? The, the double kick setup and the, what, the subsequent setup of the other drums and cymbals of the old style... Or Neil's newer style, with the double bass pedal, but the one drum and uh, his modern setup? Well, I prefer the 
double bass pedal on a single bass. However, Neil has a very unique style of setting up the drums, particularly ever since his work with Freddie Gruber. Yep. Uh, to the left of him, the drums, they kind of stagger almost like a stairway upward and then come down. And that's very foreign for most any drummer. Almost all drummers set them up far more like the El Darko kit, mm-hmm. where it's kind of just a classical, classic type, type of setup. And often you'll see a lot of bands that um, they're trying to make it look pretty as opposed to be playable, and they'll set everything up flat, the cymbals, the toms, etc. So I definitely don't like that, where everything is set up completely flat. I would say if I was to be comfortable to sit down behind a set of drums, it would be easier for me to sit down behind El Darko because I'm more used to that type of that type of uh, tom arrangement as opposed to the the kind of staircase arrangement. What what's your favorite kit that he's played aesthetically? What's your favorite kit to look at? Which one looks the best? Possibly and maybe this is There is a right answer, Ron, so be careful. Yeah. Yeah, this could be me being guilty of gravitating toward the time that I came into Loving Rush, and that is his red Tama kit from years ago. The one that you see, you see this picture everywhere. It is him on a sort of a raft out on the water near La Studio. Have you seen that picture? It's, yeah, that's I'm that's sure not a hold-your-fire yeah. thing, right? Because the hold-your-fire was no, like a no, pinkish-white. It's more of a moving pictures thing, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Well, I'm sorry to say that, that you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, which one is it? Let me hear it. Uh, I, like, I like snakes. I, lo- I love the Snakes and Arrows kit. I love it. That bright red and the, a touch of gold... And I think it had like a black, a black chromey kind of um, like an El Darko kind of color hardware. Right. I yeah. and and again, I'm I'm biased because that was my f- the first Neil Peart Neil Peart drum kit I ever saw. Uh, so there was cool. a little bit of emotion attached to it, but uh, yeah, that's yeah. cool. Um, Very cool. And, now- and I also think like just for me and my experience looking at things with this band, like googling the band's name or whatever. I haven't seen much of the Presto kit or the Roll the Bones kit or Counterparts. A little bit of Test for Echo. I know like Test for Echo had the cover on the head and it was like a darker, maybe like a black kit. I don't know anything about those right. 90s kits. Right. Didn't Presto have... Presto had the, the hand and the fist and the rock and the whatever, right? Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. For a long while, up until Snakes... It was very much um, a marriage of a really nice color and maybe brass rims with brass sands, that sort of thing. And then as of R30, I'm actually wrong about that. R30 was when they kind of had um, a lot more design with the with the drums, mm-hmm. you know, where, where they incorporated all the logos from the previous albums, et cetera. And uh, that's very cool, just kind of for nostalgia. I really love the Tama kit. Wasn't uh, Vapor Trails like a darker red as well? Um, You know, you're probably right. I'm not quite sure. I think 
Vapor Trails, if I remember correctly, and I may be wrong, I think that it was a throwback to the kit he had when he was a kid, which was Red Sparkle. Oh, very so I cool. I know that's in there somewhere, and I'm 90% sure that was Vapor Trails. I could be wrong. I don't yeah, think yeah. so. I didn't know anything about that. Yeah, there's a famous picture of him. You see it all over the net where he's, um, I think it's even in one of their tour books, where he's behind a little four-piece kit, and he's holding the, the sticks up kind of crossed, huge smile on his face, and that's a red sparkle kit. Yeah, our friends at Fantoons just made a cartoon of it, I believe. I think I saw oh, that on cool. Twitter. Cool. That's um, cool. You know what I need to speak about, though? Yeah. I need to speak yeah. about my, because as a... Um, a contributor, I would be very remiss if I didn't take an opportunity to sing praises or speak praises to Rushcast. Oh, all right. <laughs> I really yeah, I really appreciate you um, hosting this show. I really enjoy it. I think that your ability as an interviewer is exceptional. I just really enjoy the show. I've listened to every episode. As soon as I discovered it, which was early on, I dug back and found those original episodes and listened to those and listened to everyone since. Um, beyond that, I have constructed a short list, I believe the top three. If someone was to come to me and say, hey, what's this Rushcast? Which episode should I listen to? These are my top three Rushcast episodes. <laughs> okay. So, first of all, I think I have these in an order, but on any given day, I could debate with myself and switch them up. But I definitely would gravitate towards these three, regardless of the order. So, first and foremost, David Batrill. Am I saying that right? Vapor Trails Remix? Uh, I don't even know if I said it right. I thought it was Batrill. You're probably right. You're, you're, and that's one of my praises of you. Your ability to name a song off a specific record regardless of the fact that the name of that song has absolutely nothing to do with what they speak in the lyrics, you're really, really good at it. You're, you're like an encyclopedia for knowledge <laughs> like that. So Thank you. I would take your word, Bottrell. And uh, that was an April 2nd episode, and it was excellent. Loved the interview you did with him. And I'm a huge fan of the Vapor Trails remix. I definitely tip in a lot of, a lot of albums get re-released as a remix, and I just don't hear the difference. Yeah. Contrast to that, yep. Vapor Trails remix, absolutely hear the difference and love it. Second one, love this one. And the way you spoke on the podcast of, of this particular one I'm going to mention was very much, hey, I'm sure you've heard this. Everybody's heard of this guy. Of course, you know, yada, yada. And I'm like, I've never heard this. So I dug in and watched it and loved it. And that is Jacob Moon, Subdivisions Rooftop. Right, yeah. Video. Oh my God, I love it. Fantastic. He's so I'm great. So gl- and that whole episode's great. Your dad's on the episode, and uh, October 14th is the, the date of that episode, incidentally, for those that want to go back and listen mm-hmm. to that. Great interview, and a, just a phenomenal musician. Next, finally, Ed's, I'm going to butcher this, Ed Stenger from yeah, Rush's Ed Stenger. Band. Yeah. Great episode, April 15th. Isn't that great cool? Episode, great interview. Yeah, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. It was cool to hear from him and how, kind of how he uh, he ended up being so successful with his, his blog. You know, I didn't know anything about the backstory. Yeah, no, I loved it. I thought it was a great, 
great interview. Now, something you have online whenever you were speaking of the opportunity to donate to RushCast, you did a very humorous interview that was a fantastic interview of the Front Yard Maple. Oh, you saw the Front Yard Maple. I totally saw the Front Yard Maple interview. <laughs> That's I'll tell you what I liked about that interview. I think you got to the root of the issue. <laughs> root. I hear you. Also, I think you went. You you really went out on a limb. Nice. <laughs> and you've got to be careful interviewing a front yard maple. Interviews like that can get a little sappy. Nice. Yeah. Of course. Definitely. So yeah, great interview. <laughs> Uh, if you if you don't know, I uh, in order to promote the Kickstarter page, Kickstarter asked me to make a video. So I went outside into my front yard, and I gave my phone uh, to a friend, and I uh, I held a microphone and I said, you know, we're we're looking for this much money so we can keep Rushcast going and to help. Uh, I have a great guest for you to help support our campaign. That I'm sure you've heard of. And then the camera pans, and I'm I. I said, I'm here with, there's unrest in the forest, trouble with the trees. Please help me welcome Front Yard Maple. And then I hold the microphone out to the maple tree. And then that's the end of the video. <laughs> and, the, and I openly wept. <laughs> I'm glad you said that, and I'm glad you said it on the air, because I had literally zero response from that video. I thought the joke either bombed or nobody saw it. So that you were literally the first person to acknowledge that video. So thank you, Paul. You're very welcome. I loved it. It's yeah. It's cool. It's cool to hear uh, about which episodes you like best because I've often wondered like what would be a good episode to introduce somebody to the show with. You know. Yeah, those three. I think those three are phenomenal. It's been fun to to interview people that to fill holes in the Rush community, like I. As a listener, I thought, like, man, I wish I could, like, talk. I wish I could ask these questions to this guy that's going to remix Vapor Trails and then to do it and then share it right. with the rest of the community has been a really nice feeling. I love it. I'm really, really glad that you had him on. And now we got you on, and it's working well. Here I am. Yeah, right. <laughs> now, beyond that, let's talk about this. Um, you introduced me to the subdivisions, Rooftop video have you ever seen there's this guy dennis richard d-e-n-i-s who went to the studio this is like the most incredible drum cover ever he took his drums to the studio set them up and then filmed himself beautiful mix filmed himself covering um spirit of radio have you seen that no is it on youtube oh my god i love it now, don't get me wrong, I hate what's happened to the studio here a couple short months ago. Yeah, yeah. This is well prior to that, and, um, you know, I guess it's a bit nefarious to break into the studio and set your drums up and record and such, but um, it's really incredible. I love the video, and major nod to him for proving that Rush can be ad- adequately covered on a much smaller kit. I play, uh, what have I got? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I've got eight pieces, plus I've incorporated some uh, electronic percussion and such, some alesis and such. But 
you know, he does it on just a very small kit, and he's a phenomenal drummer. So that's a video that I definitely recommend if you get the opportunity. Beyond that, you remember the video Mystic Rhythms, of course. Yep. During that video, there's um, a thing they call an automaton. It's that they showed it. To, they showed a couple times through the video and prominent at the end. That strange skeleton that all of the there's like a roller. The head opens up and there's a roller coaster, and then there's like um, little characters like descending. And anyway, that automaton is available to be seen at a great place in, up by Detroit, north of Detroit, at a place called Marvelous Marvin's Mechanical Museum. And uh, they've got it on display there. He owns it. It's really, really cool to see. The coolest thing was, when I went there, I didn't know it was there. <laughs> so they've got all kinds of these automatons and different things to to see and do there. It's a great place. But as I'm going around, I'm sort of like, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm looking at this thing. And so, and they know what it is and they've got some, some information about it being used in a rush video, et cetera. So that's pretty cool. I had no idea it had a name. Yeah. Yeah. The name of that, well, and the name of that particular piece, it's actually artwork, you know, this automaton Mm -hmm. type art where literally you put a, a coin in and the automaton, like, takes life, you know, it, 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 like, comes into motion. And the name of that one is Hell's Kitchen. Oh, cool. Yep. That's nearby where I live. Oh, no kidding. I thought you were in, um, maybe I'm not listening well enough. I thought you were in New York. New York City. Yeah, yeah. But, Isn't... I mean, this is in Detroit. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, <laughs> I mean Hell's Kitchen, Manhattan. Oh, that's part hilarious. of Manhattan. It's called Hell's Kitchen. Right, right. I'm, I'm sitting there right, going, Hell's you. Kitchen is in New York, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Okay. I'm getting myself confused now. So I'm with you. Here's an, a question I ask almost everybody on the show. And I think, I think I nailed it when I say that counterparts, Snakes and Arrows, and Power Windows are the, the top three best albums. I, and I know that's a completely redonkulous thing to say because it's all subjective. I, I just, those are the three albums that I, I dig the most. I know it's unfair to say they're the best albums because we can't really label anything like that. What are your top three? And, and also, I want to say that I'm willing to take Snakes and Arrows and put that underneath the other two. While the other two flip-flop for the top spot, Snakes and Arrows, I think, is... Definitely in my top three, but it's never quite above those other two. Uh, I just think right. I think Power Windows and Counterparts, especially Counterparts, are the most timeless Rush albums. They never get old. What What are your top well, three? I love those. I love those three as well. My top three would be Moving Pictures, Signals, and either Farewell to Kings. Or uh, what's the sister album to that? Hemispheres. What is that? Hemispheres? Yes, Hemispheres, right. Exactly. Sorry, I was on a blank there. No, that's all right. But yeah, those are my three favorite. So on any day, it could be Hemispheres or Farewell to Kings. And And people ask me this question, and I think it's a silly question, and it's a hard one to answer. 
you know, what's your favorite song to play on the bass? But I want to know because yeah, I don't have many drummers on the show. <laughs> you're you're one of the first. Yeah. What what's give me a couple tunes that you will never get sick of playing on the drums. By far, absolutely. And I would say I'm not getting sick of playing them on the drums. I think my girlfriend's getting sick of hearing me play them <laughs> on the drums. That is the following: mm-hmm. YYZ, Subdivisions, and Tom Sawyer. Wow, keeping I mean, it classic over and over and over. Those songs, I just I love to play those three songs over and over and over. The other day, I'm listening to Counterparts, and "Leave That Thing Alone" was my favorite from the get go. Before I really absorbed the rest of the album. I hammered that thing to death. In fact, yeah. I was learning bass at the time too, and I I played it to death on my bass. Um, ever since then, and I've re- I've realized how strong the material is surrounding that tune: "Cold Fire," "Double Agent," right. "Everyday Glory," right. and I've been trying to catch up to the amount of plays I gave "Leave That Thing Alone." Even years and years and years later, years and years and years in my life is like seven years. <laughs> just to put things yeah, in perspective yeah. uh, but I listened to it the other day and what happens is with tracks that I skip lately the the tracks I like the most because I listen to them for so long um, I have been skipping Leave That Thing Alone for a long time because I heard it so much but what happens is I right. get into New York City traffic and I get so distracted that I forget to skip it and the other day, right. driving home from school, I realized I was halfway through Leave That Thing Alone, and I went, oh, yeah, like this is the greatest tune. Uh, and I listened to it and realized halfway through, right before like kind of the, the last little bit, is that one drum solo where nobody else is playing, and it's two full measures of Neil. I think that, right. I think that fill is one of the tastiest moments in Neil's playing. And I know you've got a list yeah, of your top ten, right? Well, it has not made my top ten. My top ten Neil moments, and I give an honorable mention because any top ten Neil moments, and you don't mention this, you're going to absolutely catch some heck. And that is just to mention it. It's not actually not, it's not actually my top ten moments, but in Fountain of Lamnath, um, Didix and Narpets. Of course, you have to mention that. Is that but the the big the big fill? Exactly right. Yeah. That whole solo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, beyond that, and mine, it it ebbs and flows from being in some cases complete songs because of specific reasons, and in other cases, little snippets of songs because of a specific fill. So this is kind of a crazy list, but I love circumstances. Sure. Fantastic song all all across the board. And I think that if you were going to introduce Neil to a young drummer, here's this is Neil Peart, that it's a great song because of its diversity. I mean, there's bell parts in there, all kinds of percussion and circumstances. Beyond that, Anarchist, coming up to you know the most recent record. Oh, yeah, yeah, love totally. The Tom work. Yeah, I love the Tom work and Anarchist. And... That's um, a very unconventional way to to play the drums. In other words, everybody goes straight hi-hat, bass, <laughs> snare, and uh, Neil is approaching it far more Keith Moon, almost Wipeout-like with yeah. Anarchist. 
<laughs> uh, I've, I've, of- I would throw okay. in maybe a sister song to Anarchist for my list. Uh, the entirety of Clockwork Angels, the the track, the song, I think is right. is some of the uh, definitely unconventional drumming for rock. Absolutely, no, definitely, absolutely. The end of Limelight. At the very end, he does a massive drum thing, a huge fill at the end of Limelight. That's true. Right? Yeah, I hadn't. Yeah. I had never yeah. considered that to be. Uh, I, now that you say that, I I, I realize how right you are. <laughs> That's a great example. Yeah. Tom Sawyer, the entire song. Yep. Just, and, of course, the solo work in there. The breaks. YYZ, entire thing, the solo pieces, and the ride symbol in YYZ is particularly interesting. Yep. Spirit of Radio intro. Right at the very beginning where they're all you know playing in syncopation with yeah, one another. Yeah, with Getty, right? That is, yes, that's extremely challenging. And um, mastered. Digital Man intro, as often played on your podcast. That's true. Yeah, I never get sick of it. I love hearing it every week. Yeah, it is great. Absolutely. I love the way that you've mixed it, where it's uh, instrumental underneath you kind of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I appreciate that because I spent a lot of time cutting that together to make it sound like I just took the vocals out. It's fantastic, yeah. The way you've looped it is really, really, really great. Um, not unlike, well, these next, there's a couple here that are a little similar. Tesla Echo, the driving bass, mm-hmm. the double bass beat is very cool. And he does the same thing, a similar thing, um, One Little Victory, the intro. Yep. Very similar. The is... way, the way, but that is some really, really unique drumming assuming you've tr- you've attempted to play that or can play one little victory is that a, a case where it sounds harder than it is is it something where like oh no that is very hard to do or because i, I mean it seems like something that might be like once you learn it you go oh that's all it is like it sounds so complicated it's that goes into a category of this wow i'm not even gonna try that <laughs> I mean, it's just, that is really over the top. Yeah. He's, yeah, I mean, and to watch him do it live, it's absolutely over the top. So, no, I have never tried to accurately play uh, mm-hmm. one, little, one Little Victory. Now, beyond that, Red Lenses. I believe that is a great example wow. of digital percussion, where he... The the rhythm that he plays on the electronic, I think that that's a great example, that particular song, great example of what he's done with electronic percussion slightly before and for years after. So I'm, I'm trying to imagine red lenses in my head, and I, I think you're, you're talking mostly about the chorus where he says it's the color of your heartbeat. Yes. And he's the... Yes. Uh, <laughs> let me think. Exactly. And there's even... There's, right, there's even... Yeah, any any of the parts where the keyboard is going, dun, 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 yeah, it's almost dun, like a mystic rhythm z kind of thing, right? Yes. Very much so. Very much so. Yes. Now, here is the the moment I've been working up toward. The number one, by far, the most. If I'm watching this on exit stage left, you know, the live DVD, and 
there's no way I can stay on the couch. <laughs> During Xanadu, when it comes to the second go-round of the lyric um, held within the Pleasure Dome yeah, yeah. by Kubla Khan, well, the way that he plays it on Exit Stage Left Live, the second go-round, it is amazing. He takes it, does a run. All, it's simple, but it is like so powerful. He goes all the way from the smallest tom and just works with just lightning speed all the way around to the to the lowest floor tom. And is it, and it is, is it towards like, the end wow. of the tune or the, the second time around, meaning like the tune's almost over? Yeah, no, you know, there's two, there's a, there's two passages in the first, um, the line is to stand within the pleasure dome, uh-huh. decreed by Kubla Khan and, and, uh, Getty and Neil, they do this, like that, right? Well, the second, and they do that in, in the first, they do it just like on the record, the first go round, but for whatever reason, on exit stage left. The second passage of that, Neil just goes from the top all the way to the bottom. I loved seeing Xanadu live. It was my, it was one of my very few disappointments that Neil didn't reprise <laughs> that way of playing it on the live tour. I got to see them in Columbus and Detroit um, for R40, and I was disappointed that Neil, you know, stuck to the actual recording as opposed to doing it his exit stage left way. Yeah, and I've you know, often... Up, there's often been times where I'm like, the band has different energy through the years. Like, sometimes I see older videos and Alex is going bonkers. Like, he he's just right. acting like a rock star and I love it. Then there are older videos where he's not doing any of that. And then I see new videos well, where I get both sides of the coin. You know, uh... I don't know, but but like in terms of playing with the recording versus doing a little bit of improvising, one example on R40 where I was happy to see no improvising and just straight to the point, like the recording was closer to the heart. If I got to right. sit through closer, th- sit through closer to the heart again, which I've heard live so much right. via DVD. Um, I don't want to hear your little jam at the end. And I don't, I'm in the minority. A lot of people were upset they didn't have that. But I was very, it was very refreshing to just hear it from start to back, uh, from front to back, with no, you know, goofing around. Just play the tune. And it's a really short tune if you play it as recorded. So that was refreshing to me. No, I hear you. Um, I like, I love whenever they play some deeper cuts. For example, you had talked about four songs from four albums that weren't represented Yep. on uh, the R40 tour. And, well, not that we're speaking to that, but just briefly I'll mention. Yeah, I want to hear what you Test got. For Echo. Yeah, yeah, from Test for Echo, my two, which I couldn't, like, I, I, can, I was debating these two. It came up to these two. Time and Motion or Resist. Now, Resist, I believe I've seen live before. But time in motion, I don't think I have. I don't. Uh, I think they played it on the test tour, but I could be wrong about that. Did they? Yeah. From Presto, Scars, and I would love to see them do Scars with a drum solo. The way that song is put together, 
Because does, be doesn't he quote? Doesn't Neil he quote scars? Hasn't he quoted the scars beat in his solos before? I believe probably it definitely lends itself to soloing. Yeah. Uh, um, hold your fire. Yep. Open secrets or mission. I was debating between those two. Now of mission course. has been a song that I've seen live. Open secrets. I don't think so. I don't think they've ever played open secrets. Right. And then finally, Power Windows. I'm pretty sure Power Windows tour that they played Middletown Dreams, but I love it. Uh, on the Power Windows tour? Yeah. Yes, they did. Uh, yeah, so I love that. I would love to see that again. <laughs> um, guys, there's a cat on me. <laughs> and I, I'm not going to lie, I love it. Um, but that's why I'm giggling. Uh so first I want to talk about I I think you're right with time and motion like on on that album how can we not ask for something so heavy uh maybe right. maybe Jeff Garrett wouldn't like to hear time and motion but uh, I think it'd be right. cool with their new sound but your list of top 10 drum moments are is fascinating in that red lenses sticks out like a sore thumb Everything was so, you know, YYZ, uh, Limelight, Spirit Radio, Tom Sawyer, Red Lenses. <laughs> it, right. It was, it, well, that really one threw wanted a something. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted something to represent the digital. Right. You know, the electronic percussion. And I think that Red Lenses is arguably his greatest moment on electronic percussion. Okay. So... I always thought it was weird, and you'd be a good person to talk about this with. Like, what are the tunes he plays his electric kit live on? You know, a lot of the Power Window stuff, a lot of the Grace Under Pressure stuff, uh, obviously. But more recently, um, the middle of Clockwork Angels, where he spins the kit around, the kit around, but doesn't really change the sound at all. <laughs> In fact, when right. I first saw that tour, I was like, why is he going to the electronic kit? If I didn't see him do that, I would have I would have never thought it wasn't an electronic kit that recorded that sound. Right. What did you think of that? Yeah, good point. Well, I agree with you. And this year, it seemed our forty on his primary kit that a lot of the digital electronic was kind of incorporated into the into the drums themselves, like there were triggers. Yeah, it seemed. That the Toms had instead of instead of doing an entire electronic kit, it sounded at moments like they were they had triggers on the on the actual Toms in order to use the electronics. So I really love that um, that Neil's done so much with electronic percussion and with um, standard percussion, particularly when he was first getting into it. You could read in Modern Drummer magazine quite a bit. Hmm. about um, him amassing all these sounds. And many of the sounds he was putting together were from ancient percussion. So percussion that if you were to play it with any regularity, it would disintegrate because it's such an old instrument. Equally, you couldn't bring it on the road because it wouldn't hold up to road wear. So to be able to hear those sorts of sounds but yet have it be in a durable format that can make this tour worthy is, I think, brilliant. Uh, My buddy Chad, who's on the show often, I call him our correspondent, 
Correspondent Chad says I I'm able to br- I have this amazing ability to bring everything back to Power Windows and hold your fire. Uh, I was right. reminded of that as I'm about to shift everything back to one of my three favorite albums, Counterparts. <laughs> uh, go, let's go back to Counterparts. I noticed in Hold Your Fire, or not, what am I saying? In uh, Nobody's Hero on Counterparts, there's a really interesting thing happening in the drum beat in the chorus. So, saves a drowning child, cures a wasting disease. This is the part of the song right. I'm talking about. If you listen to the Are drums, the tambourine. The uh, where's the tambourine happening? Oh yes, it's yeah, a it's foot kinda, tambourine, right? Right, right, exactly. And the backbeat. Obviously, you're not speaking of that. The back. Well, it has to do with that. The backbeat is not on the snare with the snare drum. It's the backbeat where you would anticipate it to be is where the tambourine hit is, and the right. snare happens on beat four or something weird. If you just isolate that. Right. Yeah, I think. I think that literally the tambourine is keeping time, but everything else is is syncopated to that. Right, and it, it almost feels backwards. Right, but it doesn't feel weird well, because I, I, if it felt weird, I would have noticed a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, his uh, foot tambourine is something that he uses in solo as well, and he's doing it as sort of um, where he goes. Ah, uh, let's see, it's almost. Like that, yeah, you know, and um, then he's playing fills over the top of it, so it kind of reminds me of that same sort of thing where he's doing. And I've met, I've got that set up in mind too with a foot uh, trigger for tambourine, and I really like it. It's fun to play with. There's uh, how many times in Rush music do we hear the hand tambourine, the tambourine played by hand? There's one moment I'm thinking of now in uh high water after the intro yeah, of high water talking about something i don't know about where is it at in high water uh we get this big intro with loud sounds and lots of synths and big guitar parts and cool. then it all kind of cool. drops out right before the lyrics come in and just before it drops out you hear him hit the tambourine and shake it really fast like playing 16 oh, cool. notes cool i'll listen for that and That's I also cool. think this, doesn't he play it on in the larger bowl at one point? Uh, I could be wrong about that. I thought there I was somewhere know. on Snakes where he plays tambourine by hand. Yeah. Um, no, but uh, so so is the the Tama Kid? That red Tama Kid is your favorite to see to look at. Which one sounds the best? That's a, that's an interesting question. Like this might be more of a because, brand question. Like, do the DW kits sound best to you, or or what? You know, my experience with drumming is very much that the heads seem to make a bigger difference than the shells. Sure, it's like strings on a bass. Yeah. Right. So, if you put. Um, a high-quality head that has the sort of resonance that you're looking for on just about any shell, you're going to have a great sound. Now, don't get me wrong. If you go to some thin maple, you know, where the whole drum is resonating, then you're really getting into, you know, where it's just, just a beautiful resonance all the way around. But really, the heads make do more of the work than the actual shell of the drum. So. And then you couple that with 
all of the um, soundboard, creative soundboard mixing, et cetera, the miking, all that. And really, it's difficult for me to myself. And as a drummer, maybe I'm guilty of being a little deaf, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, for from drumming. But it's difficult for me to hear a difference from one kit to the next to the next. I will say this. In terms of the way the drums are recorded, my absolute favorite is moving pictures. Because, not to gravitate back or pull it all back to moving pictures, but the two reasons. Number one, the way the drums are recorded in stereo on moving pictures has was never done before and hasn't been done since. Where literally the higher toms are in, well, depending on which way you have the headphones on, the higher toms are in one ear and the lower or in the other, and whenever he does a full fill, that fill literally crosses from one ear to the other. The other reason I love the drums in moving pictures is because, in my opinion, it is the tightest marriage of Getty and Neil, where every single fill, Getty is right there, just performing right with Neil, Anything Neil can play on the drums, Getty can play on the bass. And it's just, oh, man, what an incredible partnership the two of them have on that particular album. That reminds me of something that happens on Power Windows. <laughs> I'm just yeah. kidding. Somewhere Chad is, like, oh, that's really funny. angry. That's funny. I figured for sure you were just going to parlay right into it. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, no, but I think I fall into this trap of taking moving pictures for what it is compositionally like i i look at it as compositions and i you know how is it written how is it performed whereas i'm probably overlooking for those of you who think that jay mantis undervalues moving pictures too much or to any degree i acknowledge that i probably overlook things like that where you know when was the last time i listened to moving pictures with a good set of headphones and noticed right. how great the stereo recording is of the drums, how how well how in sync Getty and Neil are. Um, I'll admit I, I'm probably guilty of that. So those are good points. Please listen to it. Please listen to it. Now I will say, Moving Pictures is absolutely guilty of being way overplayed. It's way guilty of being way overplayed live. I mean, for heaven's sakes, Time Machine tour. <laughs> they played the whole thing live. So, but if if I can get past the fact that when I listen to Tom Sawyer, I click next because I've heard it too many times. Mm-hmm. When I play Tom Sawyer, I never click next. I love to play the song anymore. I'm in a. I've been for many years in a duration of clicking next whenever it comes on the radio, or, or more more appropriately, whenever it comes on my own mix or my own CDs. However, in my experience, whenever I'm in a mode of clicking next to a specific song, years later, I'll come back to that song totally. with a new ear. Yep. And a new, and it really, a lot of Rush albums have been that way for me, where the original release of the album, you know, it took a few listens and um, some time, and most often, many albums. Once I saw it live, Clockwork is one of those records for me that 
when I first heard it, it was great. When I saw it live, it was phenomenal. I mean, I just really loved seeing them perform those songs. Gave me a better mental image to work with in relation to listening back to it. And it really made me love the record. I don't think you could be more right about coming back to albums with, or tunes with a different ear. I mean, that's what I did with Leave That Thing Alone recently. Right. Um, right. And I did that with segments. Like, I'll, I haven't listened to the Shrieky stuff in a, a few weeks, months. I've, I've been hitting the backside of Presto and the backside of Roll the Bones really hard. Um, yeah. But I'll be back. You know, I'm going to have a fly-by-night kick. I'm going to have a kick where I listen to Fountain every day. Uh I'm gonna soon. Yeah. I'm soon. I'm going to re- remind myself how amazing 2112 is as a whole. <laughs> right, right. Oh, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that. That brings me to another thing I wanted to mention in relation to various cool Rush stuff that I wondered if you'd ever seen. Um, I don't know if you're much of a video gamer or whatever. Sure, yeah, man. Um, I play. Yeah, yeah, I, I am. I'm not, like, addicted or anything, but the types of games I like, I definitely enjoy them. Um, I've played Guitar my fair Hero. share of of Crash Bandicoot. That's cool. Yeah, right? <laughs> no doubt. Yeah. Guitar Hero, Guitar Hero Warriors of Rock. Have you ever heard of or played that game? That's a more recent version of Guitar Hero, right? Yeah, but it's a version of Guitar Hero that has... 2112, it's an entirety. Holy crap. And, yeah, it's fantastic. And has, and this is going to blow your mind, so please make sure that that cat is safely seated <laughs> on your lap before you jump up. Um, Getty, Alex, and Neil provide a spoken narration. The You know when you open up the gatefold of the album, there's sort of the, the story Yep. Of twenty one twelve, well, they take you know in turns in sequence. They re- each read a section of that. Oh so man! So as you go through playing, yeah, it's fantastic. As you go through playing the game and unlock certain parts of the game, you then have unlocked that narration, and that narration is what kind of carries you through to the next section of the game. That's it's so really, great. really, really cool. You've had so yeah, much, like, really you You gave me so many things in this episode that I n- had never heard of. <laughs> and that's, that's the best. Cool. That's cool. It, it, yeah, in return know, that, for me introducing you to Jacob Moon, I guess. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, I definitely wanted to, wanted to see if um, if you had heard of some of these things. Equally, have, the Trailer Park Boys, I love, the, I love that show. Do you like that show? I've never seen it. when it doesn't include Alex Lifeson. (laughs) Uh, But I've multiple occasions where people come up to, you know, I mentioned something about Rush, and yeah, I'm a really big fan, and and people go, oh, you're a big Rush fan? Like, you know, like, Trailer Park Boys? (laughs) And I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Um, Well, and the movies are not that good. I don't like the Trailer Park Boys But you enjoy the the show? I love the show. The series is fantastic. Okay. The movie, there's something about it that does not translate to their movies. But the actual series itself is fantastic. And so I wondered, I wondered what your thoughts were on Trailer Park Boys. Now, another thought that I've had that's never been mentioned on Rushcast. Have you ever listened to Getty on, Bob, and I'm sure you have, Bob and Doug McKenzie? Take off! 
to the grave exactly, where no yeah. take yeah. off. Yeah. <laughs> when I was a little kid, yeah, when I was a little kid, I, I had bought that record because I loved Bob and Doug McKenzie. I loved SCTV. And so I had bought that record and really wasn't even a Rush fan at that point, you know? So. I, I remember dying laughing when I, my dad told me about that. He's like, oh, yeah. I, I, now we were, he and I got into Rush like a, again. He, you know, reintroduced himself to the band in a greater uh, capacity and was like, oh, I forgot about this thing. We got to go find that. And uh, it was the best. Man, that's got to be some of his highest singing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I remember yeah. my, my bass Plus, team. I love the, they do sort of an interview with Getty or sort of a dialogue with Getty during, during which <laughs> at one point Getty says, I'm a professional, eh? Because he's being put over by uh, either Bob or Doug, one of them. I think it's Bob McKenzie saying, like, oh, that was awesome. Great job. It's like, hey, I'm a professional. My, my now, bass teacher up at, when I was doing undergrad near Canada, uh, my bass teacher lived in Ottawa and, and commuted. And I told him, he knew I loved Rush, and he would he would always talk about that show and make fun of it and and he he had the accent, so it was it was great. It was authentic. Right. Yeah. One of my favorite videos now, is. Ever, oh, go ahead. You oh, tell me. I was going to change the subject or, or or kind of shift it up to um, geocaching of all things. Have you ever heard of that? No. Ah, I can't believe that. Well, don't let me go into some long-winded deal about geocaching. Anybody interested in geocaching can certainly learn more about it on geocaching.com. But in short, what it is, is using a GPS, very nerdy, using a GPS to find something hidden by another geocacher. And so you use the GPS to find it. And then if you wish, you can either just sign the log that you found it and then log online that you found it. Or you can trade items, you know, and it's always typically. It's usually like McDonald's uh, toy type items, but I digress. The reason I bring it up is that an element of geocaching is puzzle caches, where in order to fit, in order to find the final coordinates where the hide is, you've got to first work out a puzzle. And I actually have a rush puzzle geocache. So if you were to if you were to Google the following letters and numbers, it's sort of a, a geocache code. It would bring you straight to this puzzle. So I think that for you and Rushcast listeners, it would be compared to other people uh, a simpler puzzle, but still perhaps a challenge to figure out the coordinates. <laughs> the uh, the code is GC as in geocache. 5CGQX. So if you care to check that out, it's a cool cache. It's it's pretty fun. Go find it. And you don't even have to physically go get the cache. You can still figure out the coordinates and kind of at least enjoy the puzzle of it. Sure. Yeah, that's really interesting. Cool. Uh, Ron, I'm happy you donated. I'm happy you're on the show, and I'm happy that... I'm happy to have you as a friend of Rushcast, so thank you for, for being here. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And I hope uh, we stay in touch down the road. I would love we, it. we were talking about maybe uh, 
uh, here if you ever want to send in audio clips or anything to contribute to the show and listeners can hear back from you. That's always a possibility. Absolutely. I will look forward to it. Anything else you want to say before we're done here? Well, the future of Rush. One last thing, the future of Rush. Although no one knows, obviously. Only all we can do is speculate or perhaps even hope certain directions come around. Future of Rush, perhaps. I love Getty's My Favorite Headache so much that I would love to hear him release another record, and I'd love to go to a smaller venue to see Getty perform. And then I'd love for Rush to get back together and, you know, do it all again, you know. But I I would love to see Getty perform uh, some of his My Favorite Headache and whatever he would release that would be pretty phenomenal. Listen, I I couldn't I cannot say enough good things about my favorite headache and it took forever to grow on me, but uh we're doing a an album series in 2016 starting with the first Sunday of the new year. We're going to go through every album and uh bring on people who are, you know, basically experts on that album. And I want to include Victor and I want to include my favorite headache chronologically. So Ron, if you think you can speak to my favorite headache, by all means, uh, send your ballot in. If anybody else is listening, and we've got a bunch of albums open still, uh, if you were around when a certain album came out and you know a lot about that album, or just want to speak about your experience with that album, let me know, and you'll be the person to come on like Ron is on right now and talk about one specific album for an entire episode. Uh, but my favorite headache is, man so many good tracks and that was again a thing you just had to be in a different mood and you had to be expecting something different to really understand it yeah i love it i love it and it um expands on my respect of getty totally and it's a very it's a different thing like window to the world is a very different vibe for getty you know and all those tracks absolutely oh man this was fun good episode man cool thank you i enjoyed it Thanks very much. Uh, And we will see all of you guys very soon. Thanks for listening. Brought to you by... No, I say it. Brought to you by Knickerbocker.